I would like to say that I'm very glad to be here. I love this center. Actually, I love New York City. It's very strange for a monk all the way from Nepal to say that. But out of all places I have visited, the first time I came to New York, I, I loved the ambience here. I loved, it's so hard to describe what, what touched me, but walking down the roads, I could see people of all kind, all color, and just the whole energy of the city was so beautiful. It was almost, almost like humming and the beautiful Central Park. And the stories behind all of this. The first time I came here walking down the Central Park, I also learned that a lot of people who live around there, they also volunteer to maintain Central Park. So all these beautiful things. Even back in Nepal, I sometimes think about New York City. And out of all places, I love this center too, because when I came to New York City for the first time, I had the opportunity to come and meet the Sangha here. So I feel like my home center in some way. I also love the, the setup of this place. And what a beautiful contrast, the busy world outside. And here so many people meditating and the music is cool on the other side. <laughs> and I also love that beautiful little cubicle there where I can hide away and be all mysterious. Today when I was sitting there, and for a moment I was alone, so I, I started looking around, and I saw behind me there was a cupboard, and on it says, snacks and beverages. And I thought, uh-oh. For a monastic, after 12 o'clock, I can't have anything. They should have put something else. Yaki thinks you don't want to have, <laughs> or something like that. Um, the topic of Dharma teaching is a very complex issue. And for a monk, who came from Nepal, it, it presents a lot of challenges. In order to, for a teacher to really be able to teach properly, there needs to be a good bond between the student and the teacher, a kind of friendship, so that we are familiar with the practice, we are familiar with the ideas, and what teacher really does is that he kind of shares his experience, what he has encountered, and helps the others to move on. So many of you, I don't know very closely, though looking at the faces, I, I must admit that when you were all meditating, I peeked. <laughs> so I kind of cheated. But I loved seeing the beautiful faces all calm and meditating. So when I was told that the community will meditate itself, that instructions won't be required, I thought, what a beautiful way to start the day. 
So it's a little bit awkward for me, knowing that you have only studied Dharma, you have practiced too. I don't know very well what your questions could be. So today what I will do is I will share some of the experiences that I had in my life. I must say, when I started on the path of Buddha's teaching, for me, it was not the question to find a better religion, not a question to find a better philosophy. I did not even have a tragic incident in my life, something so tragical that it brought me Buddhism, nothing, nothing of any sort. For me, it was an effort to try and understand the human life itself, to try and understand the mind and how it works. I grew up in a Brahmin family where I learned all the religious ideas that you should be a good person. Even in the face of adversity and anger, you should not become angry. You should remain composed. I w and I wondered, I wanted to, I wanted so desperately to be one. But how to? How could I really become like one? And that's what brought me to the Dhamma. That's what brought me to the Buddha's teaching. And I feel so enriched the years that I have been fortunate to spend as the student of the Buddha. I haven't yet become enlightened. So sorry, sorry to disappoint some of you. <laughs> but through the years I have had some moments of awakening, some tiny little experiences here and there that have enriched my journey so much for me. And now I also like to think of the enlightenment itself as an experience of awakening so exciting that you don't want to go back to bed again. So I like to see that even enlightenment perhaps is this, these little moments and little moments of understanding and awakening and eventually it all culminates. So today I will share a little bit about since you are all mostly practitioners of meditation and some of the new ones I just heard there, they are starting to practice meditation. Today I will share a little bit about the meditation that you must have heard about and most of you probably practiced already for long, the meditation on loving-kindness, metta-vāvana. It's a topic that, that I very often avoid. Even back in my community, I don't like to teach about metta-vāvana. I have had so many issues with this. But today, coming here, I thought, I should offer something that is very, very close to my heart. I also remember the first time when I came to the center here, someone presented me with a bouquet of lavender flowers. As a monk, I shouldn't be attached to things, but that I have preserved with me. I keep it in my place in Canada. It was one of my beautiful things, a secret little thing that not many people knew. And I thought there must have been some good connection, some good, good, a beautiful gesture. 
So I thought when I'm visiting here, I should talk about something that is so central to my heart. So I will share some of the experience that, not so much the philosophy of how to, how Buddha taught metta bhavana or how one practices, but more so what I experience with that. And a little bit of advice that how, practicing how it helps us. But before we get into the very serious Dharma teaching stuff, I would also like to share my Dharma mother here. Today she showed me New York Times from yesterday. And she said there was an article about Nepal somehow. And I think the topic said, from, Nepal, from Brooklyn to Nepal. And he was talking about that is New York Fashion Week. And I have had my own funny experience the first time I arrived here in the New York. We were staying with a very good friend of ours, David Grubin, who made the documentary, The Buddha. And so we went to their apartment, and the doorman, when he welcomed us, he didn't know where we were going, but he saw us in the robes. And coincidentally, in the same apartment somewhere, there was a costume party happening. <laughs> so he said, he said, you are here for the costume party, aren't you? And I said, huh? I didn't know. <laughs> and so when I came to New York, and I said, what is happening here? And when I was told it's, it's New York Fashion Week, I started wondering, oh, do we really need, an, do I need an update in my fashion? Designed 2,500 years ago by the Buddha. So I, I thought I should tell you a little bit, a monk's secret, how, the, how our fashion came into be. And the funny thing is that image in, from Brooklyn to Nepal, one of the Nepali person who lives here somewhere, has designed some beautiful dresses. And the, when I looked at it, it looked like a really ugly, Monk's robe. <laughs> Some ideas from there. And a lady is wearing it in the... I mean, it's beautiful, but from the monk's perspective, I'm saying. <laughs> and in fact, actually, we can say that the, the monastic robe was kind of like a, like a very ancient fashion design. When Buddha started teaching, there was no robe at all. There was no monastic dress or uniform system of any kind whatsoever. And sometimes it got so confusing. You couldn't tell who is the practitioner of Buddha's meditation and who is just a normal sadhu and just a normal spectator. But Buddha, he wasn't interested in all these things. He was, because he thought he had very little time. And when he met with someone, he didn't want to talk about their clothes and things. And believe me, we don't really want to talk about clothes and all these things when we meet each other. So Buddha didn't emphasize very much. But Buddha had a cousin of his, Venerable Ananda, a beautiful, wonderful character. And he was very interesting character. He loved all these design things. And uh, very often he would talk to the Buddha and say, Buddha, we should have a uniform for all the monks. 
Buddha says, no, these are not essential things. So poor fellow, Ananda's petition wasn't heard by the Buddha. So he found another one to help him. So he found the chief disciple of the Buddha, Venerable Sariputra. Sariputra was known as the very highly intellectual person, an elite in intellect, and was revered by so many monks. And when he talked about a thing, he had very perfect reasoning. And Venerable Ananda thought, because he wasn't enlightened at that time, so he thought, maybe I'm not enlightened, so Buddha must think his childish wish. If I could convince Venerable Sariputta, then maybe it will work. And sometimes the power of unenlightened people is just amazing. He did convince Venerable Sariputta. Now he had another person on board. So they, they filed the petition to the Buddha, said, Buddha, it seems logical, it would help. And Buddha again refused it. He says, we have far more important things to do than come up with the uniform. And then they said, okay, we should increase the numbers. We need more votes. So they got Venerable Ananda, another Kajin of Buddha. And three of them, they went to Buddha again after a few days and tried to reason with the Buddha. How having the robe would help. And finally, Buddha must have just become fed up with all these complaints and said, okay, go and have a robe. Go and design one. And these, these fellows were so happy. And I can just imagine 2,500 years ago, having no Google, nothing, how they must have searched for a model. Where they must have looked for one and samples and ideas. And there are even stories that Venerable Ananda, he was so excited. He gathered all the monks in his monastery and brought all the clothes and things and they were trying to patch together in different styles. It was an enterprise. And he even got rebuked by Buddha for not meditating and doing all these so-called creative things. <laughs> and they couldn't really come to an idea of fashion at that time that would reflect the Dharma teachings. And actually, the most important fashion advice at that story came from Buddha himself. He knew that Ananda and Sariputta, all these great minds have been struggling to design robes. Nothing is coming around. And one day he had finished his lunch and he was walking where he lived at that time. It's a beautiful little valley called Rasgir today. It's mountainous regions. Every day, Buddha would, after lunch, he would find some moments to do some walking around in the forest. And he loved going on the peak of the mountains. From there you can see the villages, you can see all the life. And he had a secret spot there. So that day he started walking and Venerable Anda he followed behind him. And he wasn't talking very much. And I imagine that he must, his mind must have been so busy thinking about and frustrated that Two, three weeks have passed and I haven't come up with the, with the monk's fashion yet. I have nothing to show to Buddha. And he was so quiet and Buddha must have noticed that Ananda's mind is busy with something. They came to a stop where Buddha kind of paused for a moment and looked at the beautiful scenario and he enjoyed And he said to Ananda, Ananda, I know you have been working on the robe. If you really want to design the robe, design the robe based on the pattern of these beautiful rice fields. And Buddha loved that place. In the Magadha near that valley, still today, it's a place that is known to be the most fertile. And rice grows like anything there. Because all the rich soil from the Himalayas, the mountains, 
gets washed in the rain in the monsoons and goes and saturates around there. So they have the best rice produced. And Buddha loved that place and saw how much rice they, it produces. And he says that the monks, the monks' community, they are very productive people. They, they are the field of merits, he called. That they, with very little investment in them, very little cost, they should be able to produce happiness and joy for people and for themselves. So he said, Ananda designed the ropes based on the pattern of the rice fields. And that was an idea, and everybody got together. So if you look at the monastic ropes today, and if you spread it out, you will see that these are the alleys you walk through. And then there are blocks of rice fields all around. So there was a little secret of the monastic system that I wanted to let it out today, in honor of the New York Fashion Week. <laughs> <laughs> now, let's go to the Dharma talk. Um, as I said, that metta vāvana, I had lots of issues with this in my childhood. I had some traumatic experiences in my childhood related with compassion. One of the things I remember, and these are not very big traumas, but simple little things that I could never forget. I grew up in a very, very large family, 18 people in my own core family. And if we invited our uncles who lived a little bit away from us and everybody together, they have about 200 people. A beautiful family, my grandmother took care of us and everybody sheltered us with so much love and care and I feel so grateful for it. And perhaps a little bit too pampered, I would say a little bit too cared for. So I was also a very sensitive child to so many things. And I was taught to be compassionate, as my grandmothers and others, they practiced the Hindu way of living. So it came to me naturally. It felt like this is the way to be. One of the incidents I remember is that after I graduated from grade five, I was still very young, we moved to a new area. My father built a small little house there and we moved there. It was a totally different kind of community. Around a couple of years before, there were so many refugees that migrated from India and settled around there, around about 200 little houses. And they were all clustered together. So we moved near there. And one day I remember on the day of Dasain is one of the biggest, largest festival, like a carnival day, where every government employee gets a 10 days of holiday, gets paid double the salary to enjoy and celebrate. So it's the biggest festival in Nepal. And the way they celebrate is a lot of food and meat and all these things, and singing and partying. But in our family, we used to celebrate with getting to know each other, inviting our families and offering simple vegetarian meal and talking and visiting kind of thing. But I was very curious to see all these fun aspects. So the new community that had settled there, they enjoyed very differently. They threw these big lavish parties and everybody danced and they drank wine and things. And as a Brahmin boy, I had never seen that much excitement. 
So I remember the first day we were there, that day I snuck out of my home. And I was walking around seeing what's going on so much, so much mm, enjoyment, so much merrymaking. And I was so happy to see that people can be so happy and dancing and enjoying. And little child, as a little child, I was so fascinated by all these beautiful colors and joyful faces and everybody happy and dancing. And I was walking around and I came to a house which just I turned from an alley and I saw a little house. It was in the back of the house and they, they had a goat. And Nepalis loved to eat meat at that day. So they, they were behaving the goat. I had never seen in my life any animal being killed like that. And the moment I encountered that, as I turned, they had put the kukuri, a long Nepali blood, and his head had separated, and poor thing was jumping there, all the blood there. I was horrified, because I was so much enjoying the happiness of everybody. And then the, the abstract display of violence there, it was so shocking, and I, I paused there, I froze there, and said, what happened? As a young child, it was very shocking. And just to overcome that, I said, I don't want to go through this anymore. I walked out of that neighborhood. And outside the village, there are these farms, just farms. And I said, I will just walk through the farms and go to the birthplace of the Buddha, calm little temple, and I will just rest there and come back home. That's what I'm going to visit. And I started walking through the farms where I thought I would see nobody. And I went a little further. Sometimes nature is really cruel. <laughs> I went through the farms, and when I thought I, uh, there is nobody around, I saw behind the walking path on the other side, there was a man, and I saw this ugly, very scary sight. There was a big buffalo that had just died, and a man was skinning, de-skinning. So in the villages, they have traditional people, when animals die, they leave them outside for vultures to eat. So he would come and take away the skin and sell them for some money. I had seen animals and I loved animals so much, but I had never seen an, a big buffalo without barely any skin left. And I thought, what is this? Poor little child. I, I became so horrified. I said, now what do I do? So there was a tiny little market patch and I said, I will go through the market now. I didn't even want to get clothes, and the way went kind of by that place. So I said, I will go through the market. Came to the market, and it just, it just seemed so comical, but it, I couldn't believe how things were happening. And then, as soon as I entered the market, there were about 30, 40 people, they were all gathered there near an electric pole, and said, what happened there? And a cow had just died there. The night before, there was a rain, I remember, and somehow there was just the electricity from the electricity pole. It was leaking, and there was current everywhere on the ground. And the, the concrete pole that was holding the wires, they had some rebars underneath, and the portion at the bottom was broken, and the rebar was showing. And this cow somehow walked in there, and must have felt the current, but it wasn't that strong. But it started rubbing, the people say, that it started rubbing on the concrete. Somehow got caught there in the current, and it's massive volt there flowing, about 10,000 volt flowing from there. The poor cow had just died there, and nobody had any idea what to do with it, and all these people. And it was just a trauma, a shock to me, and it took me a long, long time to overcome that. 
I talked to my father and everybody, and no explanation could help. I had never seen anything like that and couldn't reconcile. And that story I tried to forget. One other story I remember now was also every year around that season, they have what is called the Dasahara celebration. It's a beautiful festival again where all the people gather and they enact the story of Lord Rama and a monkey god and all this fanfare. Every, everyone in the village gathers there and it's a beautiful celebration. And we as kids, we used to get about two rupees back then. It was a lot of money. And uh, two rupees in, in dollars, I don't know how much they would be, about five cents maybe. <laughs> so we would get two rupees and say, go and enjoy and celebrate in the fair, buy things you want to, all the sweets and whatnots. And I was so happy. I carried it in my pocket and I came to celebrate one of the time. And I saw a man there I met. I was just watching the monkey god running around doing all the fun things. And I was standing by and I saw a man from my village. Poor fellow, he was a handicapped man. He was about 29 years old, but his intellect was barely like a child. And he was watching the and then I, I knew him from my village. I have seen him once in a while. And I said, oh, are you enjoying this? And I can't explain the face he had. He says, he's enjoying, but sadly nobody gave him any money, and he doesn't have money to buy the sweet today. And it wasn't, he, was, he was not trying to be empathetic or anything, but it was just, he was just stating it. that some, Like every child, he thought somebody would give him coin. And he was still stuck in his childhood. And he couldn't help it. I have never told this story anywhere, not even to my own people in, in the schools. I did not. It was something I wanted to keep it in. But today I thought I should be a little more generous, especially when I come here. I gave him my two coins. And believe me, I did not experience happiness. I didn't even experience that I'm, I did a good deed. I should have felt proud, I let go. Nothing doing, and that's why I did not tell this story that could be an indication of pride or doing something dana, but nothing doing. I've cried. And that day, I shouldn't say that I hate it, but I had a big complaint with the God. How could he do this? The great God Brahma, the all-loving God. And if he was very busy, maybe the God Vishnu, the preserver, he should have been a little bit looking after. If not, he was even busy with other things. Maybe the Lord Shiva, my favorite guy, he should have looked after this. How could he allow the cruelty? This is the most humblest fellow I have met. I know him, he never speaks any bad thing, and he's always helping people. And I have seen people exploit him for labor and say, bring this wooden thing and just give him a cup of tea, that's all. And he, this fellow does all this. And I cried, and I could never find answer, never. And it kind of, it was really traumatic experience. I didn't know how to handle myself. And I realized I kind of started shutting down the compassionate part, trying to hide it behind and trying to be objective. It took me a long time. When I started reading the story of the Buddha later on, when I met my Dharma teacher, and the story that when the day when he saw a dead man being carried to his charnel ground, and that shocked him, and many people didn't believe. We see that very often. And I could see that how it could have affected him. 
And I became very curious to try and understand. And I thought, oh, if I can meet a wonderful Dharma teacher who knows the art of loving kindness and all this, maybe they will help me. It didn't turn out that way. I had the hardest struggle with metta meditation, even after I spent a year in Vipassana meditations. I struggled so, with, so much with my nun teacher. I could not sit there and meditate in metta. I, I fought with her so much. I said, I don't like this meditation, that you sit in a closet, basically closet, in a little shell, and you say, may everybody be happy, may this fellow be happy, may this, and you don't do anything. I, I can't take it. And my teacher was to say, please, at least meditate. And I said, I don't want to. I would rather go and help. And it was kind of a struggle, a rebellion. We started building a school, and I named it the Metta School. I was also trying to kind of show to my teacher, this is Metta, not the one we do in the meditation cells alone. <laughs> metta in the local language also means loving kindness and friendship. And I still didn't understand what Metta really meant. And the more meditative I get, the more restless I become. I want to do things. Every moment I have, I want to do something. I don't want to be passive. I don't want to stay in a cell and then say, everybody may happy and bless everyone. I would rather be out there and working and doing something. And I debated so much. Maybe many monks didn't like me. <laughs> but I didn't care. And that was one of the reasons why I struggled so much. I didn't want to be monk. Every, every moment I met my Dharma teacher, I knew this is what I want to be. And every week she would try and convince me, you, should, you look such a cute monk. I was very little baby, so she would say, you look such a cute monk, you should become ordained. And I said, okay, I'm trying to understand first. And I thought, I, I will be trapped there. And until I resolve all of this, I'm not ready to become a monk. Finally, when decided to become monk in the early 2007, after spending over nine years of my time with my teacher, working there, finally I felt the time is right to become a monk. The monastic sangha, my mentors there in Lumbini, they all gathered, and I proposed what I would like to be, what I would like to do with the life, and I told them that if you going to put me in one monastery and say, this is all you do, don't go anywhere, don't do anything, just be here and just give blessings to people, I will have a very hard time with that. Allow me to work in these schools, allow me to live with my children outside in the society. And they were very smart single people, so they all gathered, they said, because of your training and experience, could you stay for one year in the monastery and teach the monks, other, give training? So at that time we had about 12 young novices and they were being sent to Sri Lanka. So I said, okay, I will teach them for a year. And I was teaching Pali and all these texts. Pretty much monastic business, a lot of monastic business there. And I kind of enjoyed it. And at that time I, I found a small room in the, in the Buddhist organization where I stayed. It's a large complex of so many buildings here and there. And I found this room, little hidden room, I called it the monk's man cave. <laughs> it was so hidden, you, you wouldn't know that somebody lives there. And I loved it. It was really like a cave in a way. And what I loved was that nobody could easily find it. And one day, 
and a very unexpected fellow found me. One day there was a knock on my door and when I opened it, there was a man who was taller than the door itself. Uh, a man from Denmark or somewhere, a Danish person, a really tall fellow. I said, what is this? This is quite unexpected. And he says, are you the Venerable Matei? Are you Matei? I said, yes, but how did you find me here? I was so surprised. And he says, oh, that's another story I will tell you. Well, but I have been looking for you. I said, oh, what did I do? Where are you looking for me? And he says, I have a problem that I have been struggling for very long. And I, I have deep faith you can help me. That's why I found you. That's why I'm looking for So I invited him in and I said, well, let's have a seat. Well, let's hear what you have and let's see what I could offer. And what he told me really shocked me. It was so unexpected. Believe me, being a monk, you get to hear so many funny things from people. I believe sometimes things they, you get to know that even their psychiatrists wouldn't know about them. <laughs> so sometimes you become okay, I won't be shocked, I'm okay with it. But what he told me was so surprising, I had never expected at that time. Anyway, he said that about two years before, he started to work with some groups and things and learned to see ghosts. And I thought, hey, that's strange. I said that it took him some time, but eventually he was able to contact dead people, see them, perceive them. And then he said he started touring around trying to meet shamans and things, and he went to India in Asham, a bit of tribal mountainous region there. And while he was there, he spent six months visiting and the shamans there and learning about things. And he said something happened. One day he had such a profound, shocking experience in a way. He said that the shamans, they gave him a small seed of datura. It's a very narcotic plant in India. We worship it as a Hindus. We used to, in childhood, we used to offer it to Lord Shiva. Saying only Lord Shiva can, can digest this. It's so powerful. I think it's called cannabis or something, I don't know. It's really dangerous. That's all I know. The name is the dangerous one. And he said that he was offered a seed and he ate it and participating. He said that, in his words, he said that his consciousness opened. I said, okay, well, so many monks, we try to open our consciousness. If it happened to you, why not? Beautiful. And he says, no, since then, he's having trouble time. He says that when he goes to sleep sometime, spirits attack him. And he showed me the marks on his body. And I was like, okay. So he says, you monks, you have these mantras and protective charms and things. How do you protect yourself from the ghosts and the spirits? I've been looking for this. And I started wondering, how did he really find me here? <laughs> and I didn't have that much time to really get, know from him how he found me. So I thought maybe he'd been asking all these strange questions and everybody, all the monks in Lumini must have thought, oh, we, just, we should just send him to Matei and make him pay for all the trouble he has caused. <laughs> and I checked there. I was shocked because I had, I had my own episode in my life at a time when I did not believe in all this. I was so disappointed in all these visions, the beautiful world and every ability to solve every kind of problems and that even if Lord Shiva becomes very happy, he can give you boons and every, will, every problem will go away. And I was so fed up with all these things. I began to doubt every little thing. And I, I feel bad about it now. 
I gave such hard time to my poor teacher. At one of the time when she was trying to convince me to become a monk, I put a challenge. I said, if you can prove me there is something after the death, I will become the monk the very moment. I wouldn't hesitate. And she said, how can I prove you? And I said, show me a ghost. I want to meet a ghost, and then I would not ask any other question. And she laughed and laughed, and she says, well, who knows, someday it might happen to you. And I didn't want to wait around for that thing to happen. So I said, okay, I will try and find out myself. And I had heard so many stories about in my villages, uh, behind my village area, about two kilometers away, there was near the river, there is a charnel ground where they cremate all the dead bodies and things, and it's known as the ghost land. Nobody dares to go there. And I have been told by my grandfather, grandmother, everyone, that if you go there in the middle of the night at 12 o'clock, the doors of this world open and you're bound to meet ghosts. And so many other people in the village, they told me they even have parties. The ghosts, they, when they gather, they're distributing tobacco and all these things and they're having <laughs> party. And I thought, oh, okay. And somehow it never occurred to me, go and check it out. And I guess because they didn't really allow me to wander on my own very often. So when I started to doubt everything, I thought I will go and figure that out. So those days I used to do a lot of Vipassana meditation. So I had this white beautiful saw and I would wrap myself to protect from the cold and thing. And in the, in the night, after about 11 o'clock, I would, I would like a thief. I would sneak out of my house so that my parents don't find out. And slowly and slowly walk to that place. I never met the ghost, but I came through some very strange experiences. I realized that even I am about 500 meters away from that site, I can barely see the trees standing there. And yet I'm already shaking. The ghost within me is coming out. I'm perspiring, I don't know. Some days I just said, okay, this is as far as I can take it today. I will try and do more a little bit tomorrow. I wouldn't force myself. It took me about a month almost to get to that very place. Finally I got there, waited for the ghost till the dawn. No one showed up, and I said, maybe today was just a day off or something. I went there so many times, <laughs> nothing happened, and I was so disappointed. But then I became intrigued about, why do I experience fear? And then I started listening to the Dharma talks, and in the meditation, they say, look at the fear. And reading the suttas of the Buddha, and he says, when I walked into the forest, how did he know that my meditation is growing? He says, in the early days before he became enlightened, he says, I lived in the darkest forest, and when there was the thunder in the night and all these shapes and things and darkness and everything, my hairs did not stood up. I didn't feel the same fear as to, and I learned my meditation is growing. And I said, hmm, this was an issue for Buddha. So oh, I should I should see into the fear itself. So that was my episode, and I thought, I have never really met the ghost. Maybe my experiment didn't go very well, but this fellow must have succeeded. So what to do? And I said, well, I, should, I would like to congratulate you, really, but you are suffering from it. And let me tell you, honestly, I have never seen the ghost. I have never met one. So I don't really know exactly how to protect, and nobody gave me the secret mantra. But there is this teaching the Buddha has taught that we practice. And I didn't tell him my, my struggle with it. And he said, there is this metta vāvana, the Buddha teaches, and in the olden days, actually started from as a protection from the ghosts and the spirits. That's how Buddha found the skillful ways to teach at the time. A very funny story. You can ask your wonderful Dhamma teachers here. I'm sure they know of it. And so I said, this is a practice that monks practice. 
as well as any Dharma practitioner used to practice. And one of the power is that it, it helps. And maybe you want to try this. And he says, please teach me. And I said, no, I can't teach you. I didn't tell him why. I said, I can't teach you this. But I can tell you, go to places and learn. So I, like a doctor, I actually wrote things for him. He said, number one, step one, you go and take a 10-day Vipassana course. <laughs> and you will learn how to do metta. Number second, in case the first strategy failed, and I said, learn, go for another second day. Number third, do another 10-day. <laughs> And he was happy. After about four months, I got an email from him. He had done three courses by then, served a course, and also met His Holiness Dalai Lama on his Europe tour somewhere. And he wrote me that the problems didn't disappear right away, but the intensity has decreased a lot, and it's, it's peaceful now. It's peaceful now. And last 20 days, he had not had any bad dream, or he's kind of being able to sleep well. And I remember that. It was a great lesson to me, and I became so intrigued. I didn't believe in the ghosts. But how is this thing working, even if they are ghosts or not the ghosts? How, how is this loving kindness really working? What is it doing to help him? In my mind, I thought he must have had some kind of psychotic episode, combination of his, who knows, his stress in life. I mean, why would someone, except a crazy monk who is destined to become a monk, why would someone go looking for ghosts? There's so many fanciful places to find, so many beautiful restaurants to discover in life. Why would someone do that? So he must have had suffered a lot in his life that he was on that kind of journey. So I thought he must have had some kind of psychotic episode. How did the practice of loving kindness help him? And I became very intrigued. And I said, hmm, maybe I should just try it. Maybe it is sometimes okay to be emotionally a little vulnerable, feel helpless, that I can't do, there is so much suffering in the world, I can't do, but maybe at least I can wish well for everyone. And it took a while for me to, to come down to that and be able to sit on the cushion and not see that moment wasted. And it taught me so such beautiful thing. I consider as as a tiny little, very tiny little moment of awakening. And I kind of keep it hidden in my little gem box. This experience I must not forget. If I forget other things, I want to remember this. We practice loving kindness in so many ways. A lot of places they talk to. But I wanted to understand how does this really work? How does it help with the, the struggle? In his case especially, maybe he was dealing with some kind of psychotic episode. How did this simple little thing, and initially I thought it was a deceitful little thing, rather than telling to go and help everybody, they're just telling you sit on the cushion and just say, may everyone be happy and happy and do nothing maybe. I thought, how is this really working? Try to understand. And after many years, I still don't know fully how it does. But what I can begin, what I begin to see a little bit is that from, I'm a monk. I don't like to call myself a Buddhist monk. Because I believe being monk is so beyond everything. It's a new way of life in a way. Really, a very strange one, but very beautiful one. It represents freedom of mind as well as freedom with life. 
I consider myself that I'm, I'm free to experiment with life you know, in, in different ways, given within the monastic communities. <laughs> Sometimes I just have to benefit from other people's experiments, like with the drugs and other things. <laughs> and I also see myself as, as a social worker, working, working with my children in the Lumbini, working with the community, their mothers and parents, and I try and understand what is it to be a human being? How do we live in peace and harmony together? How, we, how do we manage to be part of the struggle of survival and daily living and yet manage to keep a calm and sane mind? What are these things? I'm trying to understand why, despite so many talks of so many Buddhas being in the world and so many wonderful teachers being in the world and so many wise people being in the world, and especially so many state-of-the-art universities and the brilliant professors being in the world, why there is so much chaos that we can't figure out simple little things. I try to understand. And in Nepal, it's more apparent than here. Because I, I read all these things. Nepal, for example, is one of the countries out, in the world, out of so many countries in the world where we have amazing natural water resources. They have been studied by World Bank and others saying that Nepal has a huge potential to produce electricity, just the hydroelectricity, more than, 100 times more than it can consume and sell it, and that alone could feed so many people in Nepal. And yet, we have 18 hours of blackout every day. And why haven't anybody figured out? So many brilliant people. What are the things that, that really stop us? So I try to understand humanity in so many ways. And one of the things, kind of, it seems that what we agree that the... I mean, there are so many reasons why such a thing happens. But what we understood is that at the personal level, it begins with too much self-centeredness. Many people call it, oh, because everybody is so selfish. It's not that as, as easy as that. I learned that, it's, that the root of so much mental neurosis is too much self-focus, too much self-centeredness. In Buddhism, the Buddha addressed that as the grasp on self, an effort for self-preservation, self-existence. And it's a little bit more complex than just being selfish. It's a little bit more subtle than that, and much more deeper. And Buddha says that because as human beings we have such a strong grasp of ourself, me, and trying to preserve myself, the focus is on me as an individual. And that is one of the root causes of so many mental neuroses being born. Anxiety and others, they start from that notion of self. Because there was another issue I had been struggling. Being a strong Brahmin family member, one of the things I had learned was great belief in the soul, the Atman. And the Brahmins, they love Buddha for all his wisdom. They, they even pardoned him for shaving his head and not keeping the matted hair, like Lord Shiva. But they never pardoned him because he destroyed the most beautiful dream they cherished, the belief in soul. It was so superior that even the God was nothing but the part of the soul. And when Buddha really emerged as the teacher, the thing that he really had personal issue with and attacked was the idea of soul. 
Because the notion was that, that I never change, I never die, I'm the eternal soul. And Buddha said, I have big issues with that. And that's how he teaches about anatta, non-self. And I, I could not understand why would be so, someone so crazy and talk about this trivial issue. What matters if the soul is there or not? And I didn't understand why Buddha would put it as one of the primary pillars of Buddha's teaching. I thought people can practice generosity, compassion, kindness, even meditation. If you don't tell them there is no soul, it's not necessary. Sometimes it works better if you tell them you have a soul hiding in you and if you close your eyes and meditate, maybe you'll find it. People will be more curious and you come here and say you don't have a soul and meditate and find something. It's more confusing and yet Buddha put that there because he saw that it was a fundamental importance. And like a plant that has some disease in its roots, no matter how much water we pour in, no matter how much pruning and taking care we do of the tree and the trunk and the leaves, it won't be healed unless the, the problem, the disease at the root is dealt with. So Buddha says a big reason why there is so much mental neurosis in the world, so much anxiety, worries, pain and suffering, the dukkha, the emphasis also starts from self. But it's a very touchy issue. I learned it by serving the kids. I was staying with my children. As a monk, I could, I could become ready to destroy myself. You know. Okay, I won't worry about myself. Oh, this myself, I kick you out. But when I'm dealing with the children's, children's I look at the children and I say, what can I offer them? And I read so much. Sometimes reading is really not fun. It causes a lot more trouble. And I read about children's and their development and all this. How, how do we form a personality? What are the good things we can contribute? And I learned that sometimes a lot of people, they have a lot of problems in their life, a lot of suffering just because they didn't have enough self-esteem. They didn't have a grounded sense of self-worth. And no matter how much you try and help, how difficult that feels. And I learned that it's not as easy as calling, okay, get rid of yourself. It was a little bit more complex, a little bit more trickier than that. So where do we find the balance between generating a good self, developing yourself, getting a rounded sense of me as a being? And at the same time, allowing the spaciousness, allowing the wisdom to seep in slowly to know that really there is no me somewhere. And where is the fine balance? I haven't found the perfect hack yet. But sometimes Buddha says the best way to deal with it is not to deal with it directly. Sometimes to kind of approach it from the sides. And metta bhavana is a very interesting little meditation that creates a way around it. Because all the other meditation you are doing, we are doing the anapanasati, it's just about me. I will become a better person. I will control my mind, a monkey mind, I will train it. Some people say, no, no, my mind is like elephant, more powerful, I will train it, whatever. But the emphasis is on me. And even we start and say, I want to become Buddhist. Why? Because I can become a bodhisattva, the great being. Okay, all right. It's all about me, really. <laughs> Even the teachers are very honest. They tell you it's about your personal growth and become a better person. But honestly, the idea starts from me, self-preservation, self-development, all that. 
But there is one meditation, an odd meditation that doesn't fit anywhere. Meditation on loving kindness. But how it works is that you kind of slowly change the emphasis from me to others. And you can't do it directly. You can't fool your mind. A lot of people have done. We have done in the monastic business for a very, very long time. We read every day. I live my life for others. I will not become enlightened until everybody in the world has become enlightened. It doesn't work even after reading 30 years. This is an inner secret I'm letting out. <laughs> but the emphasis is that if we can fool the mind somehow without threatening it. So for a moment, let yourself be and allow some spaciousness. And you familiarize by kind of creating an awareness that you can include other people in there without using them as a means to justify yourself, as a means to show I am becoming a better person. Nothing doing. For a moment, you forget about yourself. You put yourself in a lower position, put them in a higher ground. And you kind of meditate. And it's a tremendously powerful system that works on its own. It takes a while, but what I realize is that slowly and slowly it heals and calms down the, the neurons of the mind that are fueled, that are charged all the time to preserve our identity, preserve ourselves. Because that's what they are doing since the birth. When you meditate like that, they remember everything. We might be asleep, but our mind, our neurons, our thoughts, they have to keep a keep mandate of every little thought you think, every little action you do, and nothing goes unnoticed. So when you start meditating more on loving kindness, after a while they realize this is something that is a strange element. It doesn't compute, it doesn't work here, where does it belong? And it takes a while before they create a new identity, before they understand. And it has such a harmonious flow. It's not the bolt, the electric bolt of me and myself, the electric bolt of ego, but it's rather like a, a very beautiful energy, like the flowering, the essence of things. It takes a time, but when you meditate, what happens is that your, your mind calms down. I like to see, I don't know, I'm waiting, someday scientists will tell me honestly, about two or three days ago, I was sitting together with a very brilliant um, neurologist, a doctor here in Newark, Dr. Philip Stiege, I believe. He's a strange fellow. He cuts open people's brain, and people pay him a lot of money for that. But he helps them. He helps them to become better. And we were having a dialogue, and I was, I was hoping that, because he's also writing about mindfulness and training people and talking about it, maybe he will be able to help me with my biggest conundrum, that how, does, how is metta meditation really helping the mind? But he didn't. He kind of talked around it, and he didn't talk about it. So I kind of felt sad, but I'm hoping there will be next encounter someday where I can ask this personal question. And we were also, it was a public appearance, so I didn't want to put him on a tough spot. <laughs> But what I believe, what I like to see in my own monk poetic way is that I believe that when somebody becomes very familiarized with loving kindness, the mind starts noticing, hey, this is something different. I don't have to worry about defining myself, preserving myself. There is no anxiety, no stress. I'm just wishing loving kindness for others. If they get it, good. If they don't get it, who cares? So it's very relaxed. And slowly and slowly the nerves calm down. All the neurosis illusions a bit and the inherent power of healing that is there gets the space to work. 
I believe there is some energy within our mind, some kind of wiring that makes us so resilient. Sometimes we go through biggest trauma and all it takes is a little bit of time and we can heal through it. The mind tries to find its way. But if we allow, but if we just keep repeating that trauma all the time mentally and never letting it calm down, it won't be able to work. So I believe that in metta meditation, that's what takes place. The slowly and slowly the mind calms down. And along with that, all the anxiety, all the so many different kind of mental neurosis, slowly somehow find their way to resolve. And if not, if they don't resolve fully, they at least come to understand, they connect with each other and know what is my fear. It becomes very apparent. It starts showing what is it that I'm very uncomfortable with in my life. And since then, I realized that the moment I work in the school with the children's and thing is beautiful, but also the moment I spent on the cushion, wishing the love and kindness for other people is equally valuable because it makes me a better person, enables me that I can harmonize my compassion. I can, I can embrace this overwhelming energy of love and kindness that I thought made me so vulnerable and I felt afraid to show it sometimes that I felt I couldn't be able to stand up in a way. I wouldn't be able to be a person anymore. It just made me so vulnerable. I realized that if I spend the moment on the cushion meditating on loving kindness, I can harness this love. I can, it can become from weakness to my strength in helping people. And it has so many ways. I used to be a very shy kid. And believe me, the things I had to do to keep our school alive in Nepal, battling with our politicians and the government. I needed to do a lot of public talking and trying to convince them why we are doing all of this. And I couldn't. And it helped me because I, I was able to harness my loving kindness. And I look at them and I say, at the end of the day, what do they want to be? They want to be a wonderful, humble parent. They want to be loved and love someone. And when, when I can meditate on that, it gives me courage. I can talk to anybody in my community. I don't have to worry about them as long as uh, I have my that volition in me, help me in so many ways. So I believe you will invest a little more energy into it, in the meditation of loving kindness. Taking it as a mental skill that we need to develop. And let's be a little bit generous with it and allow it time to work. Sometimes we just do quickly. We meditate for 10 minutes and say, my mind is not concentrating. What is wrong with me? It takes many years. <laughs> because this is the greatest, greatest challenge. It takes a great amount of courage and preparation for someone to arrive. And sometimes, so many years of trouble before someone can arrive to a conclusion, I need to work with my mind. It's a wise finding. It's a beautiful finding. Sometimes it takes the scientists 30 years of work in the lab before they discover, yeah, we, maybe we should work with the mind somehow. So when we come to that conclusion, we must allow a little bit of time for the solution to come. So with the meta meditation, a lot of people, what we tend to do is we, we see it as a chore and not an important meditation. Rather, the main meditation, do it and close it with loving kindness meditation so that I will have a calmer mind. It's more than that. It's a technique on its own and has a tremendous power, especially, I believe, in the modern world today, where we are challenged from the very childhood to define ourselves, to prove ourselves, to educate ourselves, to award ourselves, make us worthy of this job, that job, this qualification. So much emphasis on me, me, me. 
and the neurosis that comes with us, the mental habit of always being anxious. We can't help it. You can't go to an interview and not be anxious. One will start worrying, something is wrong with you, you're not anxious. It just comes. But the culture has become so that the anxiety, the worry, and all these thoughts that come with the strong grasp on me, they have become the predominant family factor of our mind that are reinforced constantly from morning till night. Even when somebody had a child, when it's funny thing, sometimes as monks you think about so many strange ways. One of the things I thought is, huh, as a monk I won't, I won't be able to have my own child. And I had, to, I had to think about it because I didn't want to become a monk and let on repent not having a child. So I said, better I will resolve all these issues beforehand before I decide and it's too late. And I used to think, what will happen if I don't have a child of my own? And it is so beautiful because one of the things I thought was so beautiful about having a child that you could be the other child that he needs to play with him. <laughs> it could be a child again and nobody would say, hey, you are 30 years old, what are you doing? But it's not that easy. I have met so many parents. And I like to see, I like to see if they, have, they use that opportunity to become the child again, once again in their life. You know, they're worrying about how to help my kid. Maybe he's not just focused the right way. Maybe he has dyslexia. Maybe he has this. Maybe he has ADD. Oh boy, so many worries, so many worries. And trying to think if I'm doing the right thing with my kid or not. Even things like family have become a way to, to focus on self and try to portray, try to play a role, try to be someone. And we can just imagine that how very often the poor mind has to deal with anxiety, etc. because it's very logical. Without that, it couldn't, couldn't stay alert. It needs something. It's kind of like being on high dose of caffeine all the time. That makes you who you are. But imagine having to have rely on caffeine all the time to be able to think alone all the time things it will do to our nervous system. It will become overworked. It will be wrecked, actually. So metta meditation, I find it helps a lot. The reason why I share this story is that most of you are wonderful meditators. You have the beautiful meditative community here to come and practice. Some of the young ones I saw, the new class, I shouldn't say young ones, and the youngest, I think, here. But <laughs> It's funny, being a monk sometimes gives you privileges. That even the grandmothers, the 90, 95-year-old ladies, they come to my place in Lumbini and they don't even have teeth. And I kind of, I love to meet them. And when they come, I kind of hear what they would, how they will talk to me. And they call me the great-grandfather, Baba. <laughs> and I am amazed. Like, but those are the, the benefits, privileges of being a monk. You get freedom from the A's and the restrictions. You could be anything, and it's so beautiful sometimes. So, but anyway, I didn't mean to say young, like <laughs> younger than me, but the new meditation community that are just starting also, they're a beautiful resource here to learn to practice. And you already have wonderful Dharma community here, and you're working. So I thought what I could offer here is the insight that I came in my life, how it helped me in practice and how I learned where to invest my energy a little longer. So with some of the advice I would like to give you is, with the metta meditation, is that allow it more time to work. Don't make the 
loving kindness anxious by saying, okay, you got to show some result very soon. It's been one week and I've been doing metta meditation and what is happening to me? Let's let it be without worry for a bit, not make it anxious. Just doing the loving kindness, allowing its time, because it's very shy. When it comes up, it wants not to be put in place, not to be put in a spot in a way. And another thing I have found is that I, what I'd like to advise to my students when I teach Metta Bhavana is that before we begin, I found that it's very beneficial that we, we find a way to deal with our self-preservation without threatening it. So the way I like to start Metta Bhavana is that it is advisable if you have practiced awareness of breathing meditation, maybe awareness of body, calming down, being present, being mindful. It helps because you are in a better frame, a calmer mood to start practicing. And then when you start Metta Bhavana, for a few minutes I advise to do really nothing. Just take breaths, deep breaths, just relax, let go of all the thoughts and what you are doing. And then think about yourself, me as a person. And the way I like to meditate is the first, while closing the eyes, generate an attitude of being humble person, humbling yourself. And request forgiveness. You could use visualization in a good different ways. You could even say that may anyone in this world whom I may have harmed, irritated, knowingly, unknowingly, maybe I had no control over the situation, maybe the decisions I took in my life, somebody was hurt by this, somebody wasn't very happy. Knowingly, unknowingly, if I have harmed anyone, I have caused any stress to anyone, may you pardon me. I want to be pardoned. And it puts you in a very lower step. It's very difficult to really put yourself lower and ask the pardonship. And then, taking a moment to try and feel what would it be like if you can recall someone whom you hurt and you ask that forgiveness. Try and come up with that mental attitude that I'm seeking pardon, seeking forgiveness for any irritation that my just being present here would have caused in this life. And then take a moment to reflect on that. Think about it. And then start the other side that may anyone, knowingly, unknowingly, if they have hurt me, they have irritated me, their actions have caused me discomfort, I am ready to let it go. I will pardon them. I don't want to hold this grudge. Maybe they didn't have the control over the situation. Maybe they were angry. Whatever happened, I, I can let it go. I will let it go. Pardon everyone. If someone has done something, it won't go away right away. Sometimes just remembering about it brings a lot of memory. Then in those moments, I would advise, think of them and say, I pardon you, that's all. And don't, don't dwell very long. And eventually it will become easier because you have done so many times and then when you someday find you are very ready, then you think about the trauma their irritation had caused you and say, I can make peace with you somewhere. So you will have many times to do the same thing. So don't start opening all the layers right away. So meditate on that. And I believe that is the proper frame of mind to start meditation on loving-kindness. It kind of sifts, sifts the focus from me to a place where I and others have involved. So it's not, you can't make a leap from I to we, it's not possible. 
So from I, you have to get to a place where the we meets. And slowly, without even telling the mind, you change the boat and you jump into the me. And let me tell you how that happens. So first, it is important to do a little bit on forgiveness. It's a tremendous meditation in itself. One of the beautiful things, as a monk, I told you, I, I see myself as, as a person who's trying to study humanity itself. I went to Germany, I get invited there very often. And believe me, the communities I have met in Germany where I get invited to are not the Buddhist communities. I get invited to Catholic centers. Mm -hmm. I say, strange for a Buddhist monk, all the way from Nepal. But I have found amazing friendship. And one day I was sitting there, and there was another monk, a Catholic monk, who has been running a girls' school, educates over 600 girls there. And we sat there, and we were chatting. And eventually we were able to let go of all our difference, and then we bonded so quickly, because I realized he's a monk. To be a monk is totally different state of mind. And we bonded very quickly. And I was so intrigued in seeing what is happening to in his life as a monk. And one of the beautiful cultures I saw there was in the churches, in the Roman Catholic churches, it is preserved, that it's very strange when I saw it first time that the father or the, the Dharma teachers there basically sits in a box somewhere, and there is another box on the other side, like much like, smaller than this cubicle, and the other fellow goes in there, and whatever sin they have done, they couldn't reconcile, and he tells him. So I kind of worry about them as a social asset, that if they get kidnapped, everybody's secret is out. <laughs> but I, I notice, and I see within that church system, there's some very beautiful elements, but this element is also a very therapeutic one. Sometimes it's not, it doesn't really benefit society, because if you can get rid of the guilt, you, can, you have a space to commit another crime, or another thing, you can allow one more guilt to accommodate there. But it helps, it helps in so many ways. How does it help? Somebody's there, you kind of thought, I have shared my burden. But asking forgiveness is really putting down the burden, not carrying it, not carrying the guilt. And this is a therapeutic process. And the one element about Buddha and his teaching is that he didn't want to create an institution that you would have to rely on. He was a very radical mind. He could have very easily said, oh, you need to have monks to meditate on metta. And imagine what a benefit would have been to so many priests, priestly monks. And I'm so glad he, he didn't do that. Otherwise, oh my goodness, I would have no freedom in my life, even as a monk. So what happens is that you become your own therapist in a way. And it's very healing. That meditation alone to, to pardon others and to seek pardon is a very healing therapy. In a way, it's very harmonious. So I advise to dwell on that a little bit and then slowly focus the attention on someone you love, someone you feel so grateful to, maybe your mother. And if you had a very tough and mean-sounding mother, then okay, find somebody else. If nobody, maybe, maybe the puppy, maybe the cat, maybe an animal, or it could be a friend, someone dear, where it's so easy to think of compassion towards them. And start, may they be well and happy. May they have a good life. And then start extending and include, I come up to volition that all I want to do in this life is be happy, relaxed, peaceful, and be able to do all the good things I would like to do. And so this is my volition at the core. 
and I wish these good things for everyone around the world and be able to accommodate everyone. And you kind of keep moving. As you have many meditation teachers, they will definitely share their knowledge and their skill how to practice this. One thing I have found is also important to include is sometime to accommodate. When Buddha taught, he taught in very funny way. He, he says, the beings living here and far, beings living up and down, beings living in the water and here. And I thought, I, had, I couldn't understand what is he doing. But he was a great mental scientist. One of the components would always say, that, give, mar- give loving kindness to the ghosts and other animals. And uh, as having never met a ghost, I had big, big issues with that. But what it means is that what really happens is you kind of allow to share your loving kindness, open to even things you don't know, kind of befriending the unknown the fear that is born from unknown, the anxiety that is born. So you can imagine as I share my merit even with the ghosts and the spirits, even if they are there, even if they are not there, may, may my merit, may my loving kindness, loving radiating heart and good intention spread everywhere. I believe that is also very helpful. It kind of trains the mind to generate associate wholesome mental state even with unknown factors of life. And it's a very important attitude to generate. That if you can be friend with the unknown, the knowns are easier to deal with. Because why do we worry about the known? Why are we anxious about even our beloved most people is that we are worried about the dark corners in their mind that we don't know anything about. We worry about what they could become. And if you can accept even the unknown, it's okay, I will befriend them. Even the darkest corners I will make friend with, then it gives a tremendous relief to the mind. So include these dimensions, work on the metta. See for yourself if it helps or not, if it calms you, our nerves or not. I have found this is a beautiful, beautiful meditation technique. Shadley, we're running out of time. I have, I have talked way longer than I had the time with. Very often I run into this trouble. <laughs> so I would like to thank everybody, share my good feelings. And also to the beautiful Sangha community here for creating this beautiful space for putting their lives into creating these wonderful experiences for all of us. And I'm glad to have so many wonderful friends in New York City. Thank you very much. If you have any questions or thought, I think we have a few minutes left for Thank you. Um, I can't tell you that um, uh, that I was doing metta, um, but my question is: doing metta for oneself as a beginning of the practice. Pardon? Could you repeat that again? Sorry. Uh, doing metta for oneself as the beginning of the practice. Definitely, we can start with that. But what I have found a little bit more helping, it kind of, to me personally, it could be different for other people, 
But what I find is that for me personally, I feel closer to myself, my mind, if I have done the other step first of making peace with others and myself, pardoning for other offenses, and also seeking pardon from others, then I feel kind of very humble, very closer to myself. And then I, I look at myself and say, all I want to do in this life is be a happy person, relaxed person. I want to have a peaceful life, and I wish the same for others. And that way I feel that when I'm meditating about myself, I don't feel selfish very much. And also I feel closer to myself. But that's just my personal experience. If you find that by giving metta to yourself, you are able to concentrate quickly, definitely that would be a good approach to start with. Because one of the things that was very apparent with the Buddha is that sometimes different people, we have different things that click with us. So if you find that really helps you, try with that. So just try it out for a bit and see what really flows easily. Yeah. Thank you so much for your talk. Um, I was lucky this week to see you twice, so it's a real honor. Um, I had a question about the idea of uh, Westerners going abroad and, and studying with teachers. Obviously, Buddha resides within, and you, you are your own master and, and all that stuff. But what is, <laughs> what is your take on a student studying with a teacher or seeking a teacher? Like, what would you say for a Westerner to do that? Um, that's a very, very significant question in so many ways. I personally run away from students. <laughs> also because I'm so busy and whenever I travel I get so many requests, please accept me as a student. And I, I'm so afraid to do that. Also because is, having a student is also like having an extended family, a family. So that means you need to provide enough time and care. But it also at the same time, I have looked into this idea of the teacher and disciple, as I mentioned. It's a complex issue. And there have been so many good things that have come out of this beautiful tradition, and sometimes sad things have come out, especially on the ground of North America in the past few, few years of history when I read. I feel so sad. So it's a very sensitive issue. But what I can advise is that if we go down to the Buddha himself, there is a beautiful example of what the, student, the relationship between a teacher and the student is. In a way, as you said, all the being the master of your own and all those stuff, they're good stuff in a way. One of the things is that the, the very effort of Dharma practice, very effort of meditation, it starts as a result of trying to become a better person, trying to work with yourself, trying to improve things, and be able to become luminous of the person. And the very moment someone is ready to become a student, they have already done a tremendous job that they have organized their thoughts. Now it's time for me to start work with myself. So in a way also they're already becoming a master in their own right. But sometimes what it helps is to see someone who has walked on the same path of discovery. And he has gained some insights that have helped him to become grounded on it, not be lost in the 
ideas and lofty, noble ideologies of so much. And it sometimes helps just to, just to be able to share the moment as, as a friend and be acknowledged by others that it's tough, but there are some these beautiful little gems that initially they look like rock on the road, but once you work with that, it turns into a shiny gem. From the crudeness, it becomes the purity. And so to meet someone who has some, gained some confidence, who has found a way to overcome their troubles, it is an assuring presence. It's the presence itself. And share, that is very helpful sometimes, but that's how far it goes, really. At the, in the life of Buddha, what we know is that long, long time ago, he says, and in the stories they say, in the past life, in fact, every night we sleep, the next day is a new life, if we wanted to make it one. So Buddha says that in one of his past life, the very first moment when he got the assurance, that's what the suttas say, he got the assurance to become the Buddha. He felt the confidence was when he met another enlightened fellow, the Buddha Deepankara. And when he met him, the, the scriptures say he was ready to, to kind of find freedom from all the pain and suffering of life. But yet when he met him and he saw the awakening him and the beautiful person he has become, that he's not running away from the people. Thousands of people are following him like mad children and he's not panicked, he's not frightened, he loves everybody and he's flowing like beautiful garland. I thought, it's okay, I can become one like him. It's possible. And they had a simple dialogue and from that day onwards he didn't need to stay on the feet of the master every day. Just that little meeting turned him from one normal wanderer into what he called himself the Bodhisattva, the being on the path of awakening that every moment, every life, I'm awakening little by little, little by little. And I think that's, that's a very sincere core. So in a way, it's very helpful to find other Dharma teachers. And let me tell you very quickly that also we have to get over the idea of this elite orientalism, that the, all the pure gurus, they reside in the East or they come from the East. We've been fooled by so many, so many times with this uh, analogy. But now we really know through the scientific observation, the world is really round and there is no Orient, there is no East. Teachers can come from anywhere and they could be from East. So to, to find teachers everywhere and learn from them, I think we have to be very frank about it now. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Thank you. Um, just a practical question. When during the day would you do metta meditation? Would you mix it with other kinds of meditation? Or how does it practically work? Initially, yeah, initially, I'm trying to answer quickly before the hook comes out. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, initially what I did was in my life, I started practicing it in the morning very strongly. Because when I used to work at the school and having to deal with so many people, the volunteers, the parents and the students and everybody, there were moments sometimes when I had to be harsh with people and tell you can't do this way and rebuke a teacher for not showing up on time and all of that. So I, just, I thought Meta helped me. So before I start the day, I kind of composed myself. And then later on, later on what I realized is that 
I became, it was my own feeling that in the evening, before I go to bed, it became very harmonious, that I could overlook the day and see, did I manage to live compassionately? I tried, I succeeded in some, and some maybe I was a little bit impatient, what can I do? And then I seek the pardon. Okay, pardon me for all these offenses. So I was kind of able to go to bed nicely. And then I was reading the suttas from the Buddha, and the Buddha talks about loving kindness. In fact, he has dedicated the whole teaching on this in different places. One of the sutta, a very beautiful one, I would advise you to Google and find it. What a beautiful world we live in. <laughs> it's called Metta Anisamsa Sutta, the benefits of metta meditation. They are really amazing. 11 benefits. And some of them are even this, the power that the Superman, the Batman, they will be envious of. But one of the beautiful ones, the first one that it starts with, it says, the meditator of loving kindness, they will be able to sleep well. So I thought even Buddha must have meditated it before the bed. But that was just my idea. So just try it and see for yourself which one works better. I would advise you that. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.